Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is your host, Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 42. Um, the podcast is brought to you by Phantom Bill Stickers. We're grateful for their support, and also Lafare give us coffee, and Yeasty Boys give us some beer. Um, and uh, this was a great chat for me. I got to talk to Nick Bollinger. Nick is very well known in New Zealand as, well, really our greatest music reviewer, I think. And um, and he worked for the listener for a long time, um, supplying sort of uh, you know lo- slightly long form essay like music reviews, stepping out of that capsule size. And um, he's the host and uh, presenter and and producer of the Sampler. Uh, on uh, RNZ Radio New Zealand and that's a, another long standing show he also does all sorts of other things you'll have seen and heard him speak on panels introducing artists uh, doing other bits and pieces for Radio New Zealand is writing a, has appeared at a few other places and and he's written a couple of books um, uh, one called How to Listen to Pop Music and one 100 Essential New Zealand Albums. Well, he adds a third book to that list now and, and by far his best book is called Gonville. It's, it's sort of his memoir, although when we talk quite a bit about it, um, particularly at the start of the podcast, it's, it's more than just his memoir. It's really a memoir of a time, a musical coming-of-age story. It's about a, a scene that no longer exists. It's about a few... Wellington and New Zealand bands, um, maybe some ones you haven't heard of, and and some other characters you will have heard of. Um, and Nick is almost like a reluctant character in his own story, a little bit part. It's a beautiful book. It's so well written. It's uh, which is really probably no surprise. It wasn't to me. I I hold uh, Nick in high regard. I think he's been a very influential and important figure as a music writer in New Zealand, and 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 one of my favourite writers. I never really talked to him much. We've had a little bit of correspondence over the years. We've bumped into each other in a couple of gigs and things and said hello. Um, so this was a chance to actually sit down and have a, a big talk, um, which is what we did. We talked about the book and then we talked about his career. Um, you know, he's also a musician, played for a long time with, well, the on, ongoing, long-running Windy City Strugglers and, and a few other bands. There were some, some other bands in the 80s that he played in. And um, so we talk about that stuff too and just, yeah, how he got to writing music reviews, um, why he does it, um, some of the interviews that he's done, some of the tricky subjects. Uh, I really enjoyed this and I hope you do too. I mean, Nick Bollinger to me is he's a scholar and a gent and, and, and one of the, the real greats and, and uh, was nice to unpack a little bit about New Zealand culture at this time with him, get his thoughts on it and, and as I say, just get to know him a little bit. So this is me talking with uh, with Nick Bollinger and I hope you like it. Driving back from, uh, I was in Masterton at Headley's, yeah. this must be five or six years ago I suppose, yeah. I don't know what I've been doing, I think I've been doing a reading maybe of the might have been of the Essential New Zealand Albums book or something yeah. like that. And I was driving north by myself and just thinking about books, mm. I suppose, and about mm. longer form things. And I thought, what hasn't been done, you know? And I realised that period in the 70s when you had the advent of the pub circuit, which had come off the back of six o'clock closing. Mm. You know, um, the licensing laws had changed. Uh, suddenly the breweries had to find a new way of selling beer, basically. Mm. And how mm. did they do it? 
they turned these taverns into entertainment venues. venues. And I thought, this has been touched on, but no one's really written the story of that. So that was, that was the, the germ of the idea. And thinking about it a bit further, I thought, but parallel to that were all these bands that could barely get a foot in the door of the pubs. Mm. Uh, and then I realised, yeah, why am I interested in that? Because I witnessed some of that myself. I sort of came in at the end of that era, in a sense. I started playing mm. in bands professionally in the late 70s. And, you know, by the time I got back to Auckland, it had kind of... Mm. opened up and I thought yeah there's some sort of book there so mm. that was all just in my head I think I might have stopped a couple of times and written down mm. a few ideas because mm. I thought yeah this is so then nothing happens for a bit you just go back to your normal jobs and this is circulating in your head and yeah yeah you know yeah yeah um when do you, when do you um, make the decision to do the master's course and how important is that in the is, is that completely and entirely linked to the book is that when the book becomes a possibility is that what you go into that course aiming to do yeah um i i think i had quite a clear idea I, you know thinking about this thing and actually even writing a few things down mm. um i'd written that chapter the first thing i wrote was actually the chapter about the mammal song play nasty for me i just mm. wrote that because i I had got hold of this tape, this mm. recording of a song that I'd heard nearly 40 years earlier, mm. Mm. and I hadn't heard it again in all that time, and someone gave me a tape of it. And it sort of transported me back to that world of going out and listening to, to bands in the early 70s. So I wrote that chapter really for its own sake and realised that could be a cornerstone of the book. So I started sort of fiddling around with things that might be in the book, and mm. I knew you know, I mean, I'd read books that had come out of the Manhire course. I knew its reputation. And in the back of my mind, I started thinking, oh, well, this could be mm. a way of forcing a book out of me. Because mm. if you're, you know, if you're going about your daily routines, you're trying to pay the mortgage or whatever, um, a book is very low on the ladder mm. of things that you're doing. You know, mm. it'll take you forever. But I thought, well, if I take the eight months that that course lasts uh, and just do that intensively for that time, that'll give me a you know a beginning and an end. It'll, you know, the, mm. the object of the thing, the only thing you have to, I mean, you have to do a lot of other writing during the year, but in fact, the only thing that you're marked on is the manuscript of a book. That's what you've got to have produced yeah, yeah. at the end of eight yeah. months, you know. So I thought, well, that'll get a book written. Yeah, and it did. It, yeah. yeah. Um, what were the what was the sort of decision like to go and do that course though like do, were there i mean you're obviously able to to take time out or to 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 you know yeah. reposition yourself to do it is that the reason you came back to wellington or were you yeah. coming back anyway or um we were always going to come back i mean we moved to auckland oh, 2005 or something mm. uh mainly because work she's a direct television drama and most of that happens yeah, in Auckland. Yeah. So we went up for that. I was already producing radio programs and writing about music in different places. And which I could have done that anywhere. Could do anywhere. Yeah, I yeah. Could have done, so yeah, you're I could flexible. Could have been a Nelson like yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, so, I, but once we got there, uh, and it was really only going to be for a year and another year. We've got three 
children. They'd all sort of settled into schools there. It was disruptive enough moving them once. Mm. So I think we got to a point where, OK, we're going to stick this out here until at least the kids have finished school, mm. Mm. which we did. So last year, yeah, our youngest child had finished secondary school. Uh, Kathy had got sick of directing soap operas. I decided I wanted to do the Masters and... You know, so the stars yeah, align. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Enough reasons to to, to shift. Yeah. I, um, so, I mean, you, you dedicate the book to to Rick Bryant, and and and, and you, you you say in the intro that you're a not quite reluctant character, but you're almost a cameo in your own story. Mm. You sort of you're there as a narrator, and you're there as a, as one of the characters as well. And in both in both senses, you slip away and let the action happen. A lot of the time, and then you come back and sort of, and you do this nice little um, sort of jump between uh, creative writing and a memoir, and bringing in your journalistic, I guess, instincts as much as skills. You have this sort of way of bringing in a more direct reportage style with some of the interviews. Yeah. How, how did you arrive at that sort of form? Is that is that all um, obvious to you, or was that stuff that was shaped through doing the course and sort of notes that you received and I think I always wanted to have all those elements um, I certainly as I was saying you know the first chapter I wrote was the one that was just about a single yeah. recorded piece of music and I wanted to have several of those yeah. in the book I wanted to have the sort of journalistic thing of, of going and talking to people to find out what was actually going on back then, yeah. you know, because I was seeing it uh, at the time as a sort of, you know, a callow youth. Yes. And um, to go back and talk to people like Charlie Gray or Mike Corliss, yes. you know, um, find out, you know, what was actually happening. Uh, it seemed to me that was the way to do it, was in an almost journalistic style. But then there was also this other part which... Is the, the really the narrative of the mm, book, which mm. is the it's the coming of age story. You know, yeah, it's exactly. this kid who's fascinated by this music world, yeah, and wants to become part of it. And yeah, that in a way was the piece I was least sure about, and it was the piece that the master's course crystallised for me. You right. know, that 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 the other because it's a workshop situation, so mm. we're all reading each other's work mm -hmm. and. You know, they, they, everyone loves the personal story, you know. Mm. And we were actually, that was a feedback we were all giving to each other, whether it was to the poets or the, um, mm. Mm. the other non-fiction writers. The more intimate it was, the, the, the more compelling it was. Yeah, the more real it is. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a sort of Cause a reason to read it. You kind of, uh, in the book, you're, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a musical coming-of-age story and, and just a coming-of-age story, but you're, you're not quite starstruck, which I like. I guess, I guess, you know, we were saying this off-tape, most of the people in the book aren't quite stars. So <laughs> maybe that's why you're not quite starstruck, but you're, you're sort of quite often awestruck by the situation. You know, you love music, so everything's an education and a, a next step but yeah. you know these these people become your friends your you know i guess uh, it seems like rick is a teacher a father figure in a sense a uh, and and yet he's a, a hooligan you know like he's a he's a he's a, a lovable rogue 
um, his many things. Yes, no, you put that really well. I'm glad that that's what you've taken from it because, yeah, that, I mean, the father figure one's an interesting one. It did occur to me um, that I lost my father when I was 16 and sort of coincidentally fell in with this bunch yes. of musicians who were all 10 or 12 years older than me, people yeah. like Bill Lake and Rick Bryant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in some ways, for better or worse, they filled a kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, a and mentor you mean, role. And, and you, know. you do, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say you mention, you know, your father fighting out about your father's passing in the Yeah, book. yeah. And he, and he is something of a sort of ghost in the pages, therefore, isn't he? You know, yeah. Like you, don't, you don't supply us with a whole lot of information about him, yeah. but we understand that this happened, and we can see, I think, that, yeah, what we're just talking about, that you find or have... Um, foisted upon you in some sense these father figures yeah yeah Yeah. I mean it's just something that I never really thought about that much until I started writing Mm. Um, it's sort of you know it's it's an example of things you learn yeah through through the process yeah Um, but yeah it and then of course writing you could choose to put these things in a book or not yeah you know that's right you could i mean it's it's you know you can be a great manipulator as an author mm-hmm. you can you can decide i'm going to emphasize this or i'm going to sort of underplay that mm. and see how these things work but so that was something i chose to yes to, but because yeah. it interested me and because it also struck me that there was a sort of parallel thing um which i hope people get from the book which is a kind of what happened in New Zealand from one end of the 70s to the other? Not even in music, but Mm-mm. starting off with that brief um, period under Norman Kirk, where you had, you know, he was sending New Zealand frigates into the Pacific to protest mm. against nuclear testing. He was boycotting South African, um, you know, sporting relations and mm. things like that. So you had this period where there was a sort of idealism in the air um, to the end of the 70s where you've got Muldoon and it's... <laughs> the death absolute, of that, just a, a, an implosion. Yeah, and actually Muldoon came in... I'm trying to remember the chronology, but it's only a m- matter of months after my father died, right mm-hmm. in the middle of the 70s. Mm-hmm. So in a sense there's a sort of a parallel story of New Zealand uh, from some sort of idealism through... Mm. to, I don't know, conflict and catastrophe. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you used coming-of-age story because I thought, is that a, is that a trite and hackneyed term? Yeah. But it's not when it's used properly. And, yeah. and, and your book is absolutely that. And I feel like that's got to be one of the best selling points about it because, you know, when I when I finished reading it, I, I kind of went and it, I had all sorts of emotions and feelings that it conjured for me right through it but when I finished it I was able to go, go back and think about it and go this book is filled with so much hope like you know so much yeah. all of these all of these guys want to make it kind of thing yeah, you know like yeah. there's all sorts of versions of hope in there mm. you're just you're hoping for the next thing to occupy you to, to take you somewhere yeah. and then there are people like Rick who you know I mean he's he's you know, he's not desperate for what he's doing to catch on, but obviously he's hoping for a better leg up than he's got each time because he, he's clearly fantastic and this sort of spiritual, you know, 
musical leader for so many people. Yeah. So it's filled with all this kind of hope. And then ultimately, because you put in the political stuff in the sort of uh, historical context around what's going on, you can't help but feel a sadness. You know, yeah. there, is, there are these little dots of sadness the whole way through, these little letdowns. And when it got to the end, it's like, I, I, I realise that you've you've worked, I think, on nostalgia in the truest sense of the term. You know, nostalgia yeah. is, is actually like a, a form of grieving, isn't it? It's a, it's a form of yes. looking back at the loss of something. You know, maybe with fondness, of course. Yeah. But it is a, there is a sad. We we sort of misuse nostalgia now. We give a happy ring to it. And it's, yeah. Uh, the word doesn't actually come from that. Yeah. Yes. It's not basking in nostalgia. No, that's right. It's, but no, we, but I'm we so often, glad that you took we that often from say it, because, it like that. I mean, I'm guilty yeah. of it myself. You know, we, yeah. we, it's just the word is. I guess it's malleable. It's become that way. It's sort time. of debased, really. Too, yeah. Because I think people often. Uh, write things off as nostalgia you know yeah, it's, it's actually right. a, a pejorative that's right. term you know yeah. whereas real nostalgia that sort of longing and it, it's such a mix you know it's disappointment yes and you know it's again hope hope like little hope you know, in there. Uh, yeah it's all those things together and that's quite a beautiful thing to capture mm. i mean mm. some of my favorite music captures that too mm. and mm. my favorite writing so mm. Mm. so what were the sort of um i mean you've written books before you know, the books that you've written are clearly very different to this. Yeah, but yeah. You, you, not only have you got a, 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 you know, a, a, a facility for writing and a catalogue and years of experience, but uh, it's very different to go from writing 500 words about an album to a book. But you've, mm. you've, you've bridged that before. But with this book, what were some of the, beyond um, getting to workshop it and meet, other writers who are going mm. through it. What were some of the kind of uh, influences on you, writing-wise? Were there key books that? Oh you... yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's a, um, it's it's a bit of a tribute album, you know. It's, yeah. It's there are. What I tried to do actually was combine things I've seen, read some of my favourite writers doing, you know, mm. uh, but I haven't seen one person doing all of those things in a single book. I mean. The music, the pure music chapters, there's no better model for that kind of writing than Greil Marcus. Yes. You know, um, really close reading a single song and writing sort of two or three thousand words just on, mm. on one song and what you hear in it. Uh, I mean, there's beautiful examples of that in his, um, you know, History of Rock and Roll and Ten Songs. Or yeah, I was, gonna say his, I was just going to say his recent books yeah. show that yeah. um, that's not something he's lost or losing. <laughs> no, any, no, if anything, if anything he's refining exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I wanted to have, because you don't, when you're reviewing albums or whatever, you just don't get, no one gives you an opportunity no. to do that. So I wanted to do some of that. Uh, the the sort of um, evocative, uh, the more sort of uh, memoir, childhood stuff. There's a great book if you had Giles Smith's Lost in Music, I have, yeah. You know, that I realised was a probably the closest thing yes. in one sense to what I was yeah. doing because, how, what does he call that? A, a journey into the heart of rock and roll and back to his mum's. Yeah. You know, that, that, yeah. that sort of, um, you know, get, just that sense of, of, of being an also ran or. You I, know. Don't, I don't know that that was any sort of hit book, but anyone I've come across who's read it has, you know, it's one of those books everyone has a complete fondness for. Yeah. Right? It's sort of a small group of people found that book, I, th I would say, in the scheme of things, but love it. I've never, yeah. heard, I've never heard anyone say, oh, I tried that book, I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's very readable, very yeah. personable. He's a character in it and he's. Uh, 
He's a kind of self-deprecating yes. character too. It, it's not, I mean, the, you know, memoirs <laughs> or autobiographies, and I think there's yeah. a real difference between yeah. memoir and autobiography, yeah. but autobiographies tend to be heroic. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and long-winded. And long-winded. I hope this is neither <laughs> no, of those no, things. No, no, it's you not. Know, um, the heroes in this story aren't me. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm the kind of the observer, really. Yeah, I was going to say you're the observer, but because you're there, yeah. you're painted into it. You yeah. paint yourself into it. And I think I reveal a few things about myself, yeah. too. And there's some personal stuff in there. But it's... Again, as much by what you don't... You know, what, what you leave out. Yeah. You know, I think, too, you know. Um... I was thinking too of, uh, I mean, everyone loved this book, but I thought a little bit of Patty Smith's Just Kids in terms of that capturing of an era. And sure. Again, she, I think, what she does so well with that book is that nostalgia and the true sense of it. Yeah. You know, that mix of sadness and hope is is that great sort of looking back on youthful optimism. Yeah. But, yeah. But looking back, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Yeah. I I I actually read that last year only when I was probably halfway through writing mm, this. Mm. I mean, we did a lot of reading on the course. You know, yeah. we, we had yeah, to... Yeah, You know, you just had to read. <laughs> I mean, that was half the job, really, was uh, reading books that you thought would help inform what you were doing, also reading each other's work. We were... God, we read a lot. <laughs> yeah. Which is hard work, but it's kind of a luxury of hard work in a yeah. sense once you're committed to that yeah you know. oh yeah no no it was the whole year was luxury I mean yeah. that, you know it's a great thing I, I had to keep working on sort of light duties but yes. I, I did make radio programs through most of that time I took a couple of blocks of I think a month at a time I'd take off and just yeah. just do the, the writing but most people on the course were doing some sort of work to support themselves while mm. they were there. Now, how did you... I mean, you go back and you, you interview people. You interview people that you that you knew way back and you're mm. catching up with people again. Yeah. Some, some of the people you interview are friends and family of, you know, people that are no longer around. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, that journalistic sense of actually going and talking to people... What sort of, uh, how did you access your own memories, you know? Well, there was one piece I wrote that kind of unlocked that process for me, and it's actually not in the book in the end. It ended up as a sort of, it's a standalone short story, and I might do something with it at some point. But there was an exercise we did, which I presume Bill Manhart came up with originally, um, where you start off drawing a map of the first house you can remember living in and then you write the names of objects in places on that map and you see, I mean that surprised me that I could actually because this is a house I we probably moved out of when I was about four years old right but I did start remembering things. I started seeing it in my mind in ways that I, in detail that I'd never, <laughs> just by, it's just a meditative exercise. Then you wrote a uh, stream of consciousness for 20 minutes based on that. But you could write anything. You just didn't censor yourself. Just write yeah. anything that came to your head. Then you put it away for a a day, I think, and then the mm. next day, you look at what you wrote 
and the exercise was to shape a story out of that out of material. That, yeah. And I actually wrote a piece which was in the book for a while, and it does sort of tell part of the story, but it's kind of outside the the uh, the the time frame. But that did give me a technique, and I kind of used the versions of that again as mm. I was writing. I mean, God, when you're trying to think about, you know, hotels you stayed in 35 years ago, you know, mm, mm. Um, and things that weren't particularly memorable at the mm. time, you've got to find some way of re-inhabiting that experience. You know, what, why don't you remember it? Possibly because it was pretty horrible, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did use some of that, mm. and I was pleased with what came out, mm. the, the, the detail and the sort of texture mm. that, that I was able to create, I hope. Mm. Mm. And any problems with inhabiting this world, and then, you know, like as you say, you're still doing, like, contemporary work, so you were still yeah. putting together your radio shows yeah. and, and bits and pieces. Any, any problems shifting between those worlds? Oh. Did you find yourself stuck in this world at various times? Yeah, a little, but, I mean... You know, as as a long-time freelance, it's kind of a familiar experience. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's probably no different. It's just, yeah. it's just a longer project, like a more sustained yeah. effort. But you, you end up in your own bubble a little bit with Yeah, yeah. And, and, no, and you yeah. do find yourself wishing that all that ephemera would go away and you yeah. just do this one thing. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, life, you don't often get that luxury yeah. in life. Yeah, um, Well, should we go back to uh, um, fill in a little bit of, of your story that's some of it is in this book, but some of it isn't. Um, so you grew up in Wellington. Yeah. And you lived here for a long time until... All my life, really. Until that move. Yeah. Really, with a, with, with a few little jaunts overseas. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of travel, but you li- you're a Wellingtonian. I'm t- thoroughly a Wellingtonian. Even the best part of a decade in Auckland didn't, didn't shake turn it. me into an Aucklander, that's for yeah. sure. And so how long back now? A couple of years. Yeah. 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 It came back early last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, when did you like first hook into? And I, I, I mean, I was, th- I was thinking like you, you've written two other books. Yeah. The the first book that you wrote, which was for that like, little essay series. Yes. That has that I did I didn't revisit that, but I read that you know when it came out, and that has elements of memoir to it. Too, yeah. Doesn't there's it? actually a couple of bits which I had to really write again and put yeah. in here just yeah. to. Fill in gaps. Because I was thinking that that's a book about how to listen to music and, and you know like how to you know. Yeah. I mean I think yeah the, the book's the called How to Listen to that's Pop Music and I thought yeah yeah you know you, there's you no can't one way really, you yeah, can't right. really tell people that so all I could do is tell people oh, how yeah. I listen to it and sort of trace the development of my listening yeah. and that was for yeah. me that was interesting going what how did I end up yeah. doing this for a living you know yeah, where did yeah. it start yeah so <laughs> so you I mean. You have what? Like, a lot of people have. You have a sort of eureka moment around the Beatles. Yeah. It was the right thing at the right time. I mean, I was already very, very attracted to music, and God knows why. I mean, my parents liked music, because they but they didn't play music. I, my mother used to play the cello, but not, she'd given that up by the time we came along. And her father was a double bass player. He was in the symphony orchestra. But... You know, really, there was music in the house, but it wasn't. No one was obsessed with it. There was classical music. Um, my father liked folk songs and used to sing us folk songs. Um, just a cappella, you know. He didn't play an instrument. Uh, and I think for him, music was sort of a practical thing. He he 
he was he liked sort of trade union songs and kind of you know mm-hmm. songs you could sing on protest marches mm-hmm. and that sort of thing he was you know music was a kind of tool for 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 changing the world but so i liked music i mean i liked the first stuff i liked was um you know beethoven and and <laughs> mozart and then yeah this eureka moment i remember still remember it really clearly it was christmas day 1963 so i would have been five and Christmas at my cousin's place and they're about 10 years older and they had these, they're teenagers, they had these Beatles records mm. and there were only about a handful of Beatles records that come out yet. Mm, mm. I think they had Please Please Me, um, yeah, so they had that album, so it had yeah. Twist and Shout and these things like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and it just blew my mind, you know, I've just never heard anything like Because everything would have taken like a few months to get here back then too yeah. as well so yeah, yeah. I, but I mean I wasn't exposed to it my parents didn't listen to commercial didn't listen to 2ZB right. which it was in those days yeah. uh, so it was completely new and foreign to me you know it was like I don't think I'd heard this, a, an electric guitar recorded right. before so it was that visceral yeah. thing as a five year old just going whoa this yeah. is exciting and it was the tempos were really fast and the singing was high pitched and the harmonies were kind of rich and I just wanted more and more of that. And I, yeah, I think I went home and just kept saying, I want the, that Beatles, you know, we need to get that record. Yeah. Um, until eventually, oh, sometime, you know, in 64, I suppose, that I must have got a Beatles record. And then I realised they were on 2ZB. You could hear there was this program, The Sunset Show, mm. five to six. And I got hold of the radio and figured out I could listen to that and they'd usually play at least one Beatles song in that hour. Yeah. So how many people in your family, your brother Tim is a yeah. bit of a, he's mentioned in the book, yeah. he's a bit of a, a Wellington sister. character as well, you've got a sister. Thomason, yeah, I'm yeah. the oldest. They're, yeah, So yeah. okay, so you're the oldest, yeah. yeah. So you're the one that's, you. do you start shortly after that trying to turn them on to music or they, oh. they, they look to you? <laughs> Do you get that validation kind of instantly? Oh, they, look, they're too young. I mean, I would sort of vaguely lead them astray. We lived at that time in Thorndon, and Broadcasting House was literally at the bottom of our street. Yeah. And once I realised, this was really, still, I was only about six or seven, realised that that was where the <laughs> yeah, radio yeah, programmes yeah, yeah. came from, I uh, one day took... The, I, well, I, I knew that you could go down there and, and actually watch the DJs playing records. Watch the Sunset Show. People did that in those days. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Teenagers would go and watch through the windows and there was a little yeah, cool. sort of area where you could... Like an aquarium. Yeah, it was exactly like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'd, I'd the handrail of the big... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd gone down there a couple of times and one day I took my brother and sister down there and I didn't tell my parents. I just We just sort of ran away, you know. And they called the police, and the, you know, it was, mm. we'd gone missing. And uh, so that was trying to get my brother and sister interested, I suppose. But no, no, yeah. no. So when, when, and then you go to an instrument. Yeah. Fr- from there. Not really. Not I mean, for a while. I, no, I was just a sort of music fan. I was more interested in writing. Actually, I, I right. had a little so magazine. Come, yeah. When I was about ten or eleven, I used to print this little magazine at school, and I used to do record reviews in it and stuff. That was my at eleven my thing. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. 
not, singles. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that. Like, I'd heard on the radio. Just stuff you heard on the radio. I, yeah, yeah, I'd write about And them. how much are you writing about them? Like a hundred words? At the most, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three don't, or four sentences. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what my model for the... <laughs> yeah, was, I was going to say, know. what were you... I think there were record reviews probably, in, I might have seen them in The Listener or something at yeah. that point. I, yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. very primitive, but... Yeah. And what, did you did you stay with that in some diary like kind of form, or did that fall away? No, no didn't. Yeah, I, I, it was just just a, just a phase. That was a phase until I, it became a job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 kind of. I mean, yeah, I was interested in writing. I was really getting to secondary school and meeting other people who were actually as interested in music as I was. No, yeah. I, I was at a small primary school. I couldn't. You know, there was only one other boy in my year mm. all the way through this is Clifton Terrace School which is only about 50 or 60 kids two classrooms and um, he was into wrestling Yeah, he had no interest in music at yeah. all But yeah. so when I got to secondary school Onslow um, suddenly you know you're in a big pool of people and you do find mm. kindred spirits mm. and that's when some of them were kind of going oh, I've got a guitar or you know um yeah, I, I ended up being a bass player by default, really, because, yeah. you know, there were six guitarists already. <laughs> but, you, I mean, you, one of the things you do well in this book, which I guess is just something you've always, I've always observed in your writing, is is you have these great turns of phrase and this great sort of uh, evocative way of putting something, and you talk about the way Bill Lake plays the guitar as being, you, oh, yeah. you use these words and say that they are, that's, that's how you can actually describe him. You talk about he play, him playing the guitar, it's wiry and nervous. And, yes. And then you say that's actually how you could describe him. And I thought, well, that that's as good a way as I've ever heard it put, that actually people's personality usually comes out of their playing, certainly informs their playing, right? Yeah, yeah. So do you feel, like, defined by the role of bassist? Does it suit your personality? Yeah, I found it did. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I realised that was a position I really liked because I think it's a good, you can be a listener and a bass player. You know, if you're a lead guitarist, you're very fixated, or a singer even, you're very fixated on what you're doing. That's right. You're projecting this thing. As a bass player, your role is to support them. React, well, I actually think react. of it as part of the drum, yeah. drum, drumming, really, but it's, yeah. it's this, yeah, it's a supportive role. You've got your antenna out. You can actually be listening. You know, it's not that different from being in the audience. But you're just deciding, <laughs> I'm going to put these notes in these places, mm. and that's going to help the whole thing. Yeah. And and that's, yeah, that suits me for some reason. That's so what I like. When does when does bass playing? Because um, I mean, you talk about being in the book. You talk mm. about I mean, you're a teenager still, and you're meeting these guys who are far more established than you God, as yeah. musicians. Yeah, I don't know why they took me on. <laughs> when, well, when, when does it cement for you? When do you feel really comfortable in your skin as a musician and go, I'm doing good work? Oh, God. Yeah. Not until... I mean, I was... Something I hope comes across in the book is my, my sort of gratitude to Rick for taking me on. Yeah. I don't think I was very good. I've um, been listening to these amazing players and actually watching them up close who'd been in bands like Mammal and Blurter, you know, people like Patrick Bleakley, mm. Mark Hornibrook, um, Steve Hemmons, amazing bass players. I, I mean, you can learn a certain amount from listening to records, and I've been doing that. I mm. especially, I did gravitate quite early to 
you know, after I got through the Beatles and everything, yeah. um, to Motown Records because, and I didn't even know the name James Jameson. I just yeah, knew yeah. these bass parts were really interesting, yeah, really yeah. good, and they were so intrinsic. And quite profound, like uh, profound to hear, you know, yeah. like right there for you. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and I made it a little exercise to try and work them out, some of these parts, yeah. and I did. I, I worked out some... You know, and as I say, I didn't even know that, it, that I was trying to copy James Jameson. I just, these yeah. are good bass lines. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll learn some of these. And, um, but the other part of that was actually going and watching bass players and seeing how they did it. But I've got a bit of a strange style anyway. I'm totally self-taught and I'm left-handed. And the other thing is I don't change the strings around. <laughs> yeah. So I play it literally upside down. Right, right. You know, so you can learn a certain amount from watching other people, but there's also a certain amount of my own technique that I had to figure yes. out. Because, yeah, yeah, which um, doesn't translate to others at all. No, and, yeah, yeah. unless you stand on your head or yeah. something. So yeah. <laughs> but anyway. we, so, so when do you feel like... I feel like uh, you're not... 100% comfortable with your playing the whole time in this book mm. you you know you are but not maybe because you're playing I think with people older than you yeah. more established yeah. more and so you're like you're the little kid in the equation compared to them yeah um, what the book doesn't get into is the books the book stops in the 80s like the very start of the 80s yeah and really it stops at the end of the 70s but, yeah. but it does give a little bit of context to what comes next but in the 80s, you get involved in, in quite different bands to what you were doing in the 70s. More original, more focus on original music. Mm. Um, is that when you think your playing style cements? Or are you still, you're still not sure? <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you're playing... I mean, hopefully you play what the music demands of, mm. you know. So, yeah, I mean, after after this book ends, I mean, and the book sort of ends with me kind of going, I don't know if I really yeah, want to be a yeah, musician yeah. at all. Uh, and that's a kind of, in a way, that's a false ending because what happened was I never did it again as my sole livelihood. Mm. But I actually started playing, I probably played almost as much for during the 80s because um, I started playing with Bill Lake again. Mm. Who by that stage was writing songs, and to me that was really interesting. Actually, having going, oh, there's no record of this to go and learn the bassline from. Yeah, there's no model for this. I've just got to work out what's what yeah. would the bass part be. You know, yeah. what would James Jameson do if he was you know, yeah. playing this? Um, so, yeah, that's that brings something new out of you for sure. Mm. It makes it, it, it must open up some sort of creative part of you. Your music brain, mm. um, but yeah, to me it's always been. I don't think I've ever had very much technique, but it's been sort of feeling what's appropriate. Um, yeah. And if I can't play the thing that I feel is appropriate, then I learn how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's not like I've got all this technique that I can just apply to whatever music is thrown at. So me. you're working as a postie. Yeah, through that's the what, 80s. That's, that's, what, the that's 80s. what happens at the end of the book. You announce that that's sort of what you yeah. get into doing, and then that's your job. Yeah. And you play music, and and we were talking about this briefly off tape. You're not alone in that. That seemed to be a, a relatively common pursuit. Bill Lake 
Bill was got me the postage job. Got you actually. the job. Yeah. So he, he did it for thirty years or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, various other people um, went through. A there. good job for creatives to have. Yeah, there were people. There were painters. There were mm. actors. There were writers, musicians. There were people there who still remembered when James K. Baxter had been mm, in the branch. Yes, I was going to say there's that romantic <laughs> attachment to that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a, um, it, it was a great. There was one other place at the time where, which took the sort of what I think of as the, um, the sort of creative refugees mm. from society, uh, which was the reading room at the Evening Post in the Dominion. Mm. Uh, Similar thing, you know, people who probably almost incapable of holding down a kind of nine to five job, yeah, but they would yeah. do that for that. It was a part time job, they'd do that for a few hours, that would support them in their other pursuits. Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, it was a you know, it was a good place for the sort of society's marginal, yeah, yeah. Dwellers. So, when do you uh, one thing I don't know about you is when do you, I mean, you publish your first review in your own magazine when you're 10 or 11, yeah, but when yeah. do you publish your first piece of music writing? When do you actually go either as the start of a career or yeah. a hobby? When do you actually, how does that come about? Um, I was doing, in the early 80s, when I was, well, in mid-80s maybe, when I was... Um, Probably playing in groups still, like the Pelicans. Uh, one of my flatmates, Sally Swartz, was editor of Salient. And she would say sometimes, you know, write us a record review, yeah. do something, yeah. you know. Fill in some content yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, she's actually a friend from primary school. She used to be, she, you know, she. Is the only person I know who actually has copies of the magazine that I used to print right, and, wow. and hand out in the school yeah, playground. You know, yeah. So we go back that far. So I did some stuff for her. She'd done it properly. She went off to journalism school and yeah. became a proper journalist. Where she met Chris Burke, yeah. who went on to edit Rip It Up. Uh, and so... She introduced me to Chris, and and he commissioned some things. He said you should do some writing for us. So I did a few odd things for Chris, and then and is it mostly, the listener came on. Mostly yeah. just record reviews. No, Concert those reviews were as well, yeah, or? yeah, a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, records, concerts, the odd. I did a, I think a couple of interviews for for Rip It Up. Um, but not much, you know, and I wasn't taking it that seriously because I mm. could, still couldn't see how you could do that for a living. Mm. Uh, so I was posting. During the posty time, actually, I did take a couple of years off and did teach, went to teacher's college because I thought maybe that's a job that would pull together all these things I'm interested in, yeah, writing, yeah. music. Crea creative, creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. education, which I'm interested in, you know. So I did that, but I didn't... I, finished it but I never taught right by the time I finished teachers college and I did quite a lot of writing there for the, the magazine there which was the sort of equivalent of salient it was yeah. the sort of student magazine yeah but um by the time I finished there I'd got the listener that was through radioactive actually really through a guy called Charles Mabbott who was the station manager at radioactive mm. and I was doing programs for them I, did, I used to do a soul show and Charles had taken over from someone as the record reviewer for the listener. 
I think I must have been post-Gordon Campbell, mm. and Charles was doing it, and he said to me, you should really be doing this job. Um, go and take them a folio of your stuff. And that was about 87 or 88 or something. And that becomes uh, really how you're known as a, as a record reviewer? Yeah. Once you're published in The Listener... In those days, especially, anyway, especially then, yeah, it was yeah. a door opener. You know, it was sort of like it was a big deal. It was like because it was serious, proper stuff, and y- y- everyone had heard of it. And if they didn't get it, yeah, it was in every second house. It seemed like it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It was yeah. all over the country. Yeah, you were being it had very high journalistic standard, literary standards, even. You yes. know, my stuff was being edited by people like Tom McWilliams, yeah, and Robin Dudding, yeah, you know, and Kevin Ireland, yeah. So. <laughs> You know, you would learn from the tiny little changes they made. Mm. Yes. What did you get to see back? Did you get told? Did you get some pretty strict sort of, don't do that again, um, this, this is what we want? Uh, or were you, you know, mm. was it pretty organic? And it was pretty organic, no. yeah. There were little changes. I think they trusted that I knew what I was talking about. Mm. Um, I learned stuff from... I mean, you always learn Just stuff. adherence to style. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean, I learned a lot, a lot from Chris Burke, who was the... Um, not when I first started... When I first started, Simon Wilson was the arts editor, but Chris took over sometime probably in the 90s. Uh, just good pointers, you know. Yeah. Um, even just saying, have you read so-and-so, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you'd read things and go, ah, oh, yes, that's so colourful, ah, yeah. you know, yeah, he's really evoking something. Um, yeah, I mean, reading is the other part of writing, isn't yes. it? Yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. more you read, the, the more, it's like being a musician, you've got to listen, you know, mm, if you're mm. a writer, you've got to read, and you mm. learn how people use language, and you mm. absorb techniques, hopefully. So how, um, when do you feel like, you've arrived as a record reviewer like you get published in the list of that that's great yeah but do you worry that there's a little bit of imposter syndrome going on for a while or oh yeah well you get bolder i mean yeah. at first i was only comfortable writing about stuff that i i you know i felt there were areas i knew about i i had really followed black music very closely mm-hmm. um from, I suppose, soul music was a sort of... Because that was what I'd played with yeah, Rick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even before then, you know, I loved the Motown stuff and discovered James Brown and all this stuff. So I felt I could follow that through and it was a natural sort of evolution. Yeah. Uh, I understood, you know, the Beatles and the British invasion stuff. That was another whole trajectory yeah. that I'd followed through and I'd seen how that had changed music and all the, you know, offshoots of that. Um, but, yeah, there were there were areas I thought, no, I'm just not brave enough to write about that. And it, after a while I started to realise, no, if you do the work, you can write about anything. You've just got to really do your research. Yeah, um, yeah, I think people underestimate um, <clears throat> the research that goes into doing jobs yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, they just... And I guess nowadays a lot of research doesn't go into it because it's open, far more open field and yeah. people can publish online and they can do what they like. Yes. But that's giving people an unrealistic um, <clears throat> um, window into what it used to be. Yeah. So, you know, you know what, I, 
what I was <coughs> interested in talking to you about with this is you 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 arrive at a time when this is in New Zealand, you know, music criticism's sort of really just getting going in terms of regular stuff. Like you know, it's it, it's there, it exists, but you know, you're one of the people that's you know becomes a regular name for for readers. Well, being in the listener does that yeah. at that time. Um, you know, and I, I felt, in a way, taking that on was a bit like joining Rough Justice when yeah. I was eighteen. Yeah. You yeah. know, I don't think I was ready for it at all. I don't. I didn't have the. I probably had the musical breadth of someone like Gordon Campbell, yeah, yeah. but but you know, Gordon had long since conquered that thing of. Um, if you don't know something, you go and research it and you immerse yourself in it. Yeah. And then you have something to say about it, yeah. you know. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I was also aware that in The Listener, you, even then, you, you could do a kind of writing that really you weren't getting anywhere else. You weren't getting it in the newspapers. Yeah. Uh, even the music press, like Rip It Up, wouldn't... Yeah. You know, they had a sort of capsule length. Yeah, that's review, right. You've got that then. slightly longer. Yeah, well, it's almost not, an a essay. lot longer. It yeah, that's right. That's right. And 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 I've always liked that. Um, yeah, it's sort of. It, I was going to say it suits your tone of voice, but actually, it's what shaped your tone of voice, isn't it? Is having that that yeah. that deadline and that and that word count. Like yeah. That that particular sort of weekly turnaround rather than daily. And, yeah. Uh, five hundred or a thousand words rather than eighty or two hundred. Yeah. And you could go short if you have to. Yeah, and some but and you'd vary it depending on what the thing what you yeah. thought the thing deserved, you know. Yeah. Or sometimes I'd I'd review a few things together, yes. you know, and, yeah. and, and there's different ways you could do it. But I like that format. Yeah. <laughs> um and I don't know it does exist still. It doesn't you know, all things become kind of. Uh, they, they they end up getting sort of um, reduced in some way to a for, formula. Yeah, know. yeah. So that happens in the Lister just the other year mm. for you, and you move away from the Lister. Were yeah. you were you with that magazine right through until? Yeah. So that's a long run for thirty know. years. <laughs> Best part of probably yeah. twenty five. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think. Uh, oh, yeah, no more. Yeah, no, you're right. It's yeah, close getting to the towards 30. thirty years. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but, but these things do just rack up. But you yeah. know, like when you get when you get going with them, you know, they yeah. do just rack up, and suddenly you've. Uh, I found that myself. Suddenly, you've been doing a thing for five years or six years or whatever. But 30, yeah. thirty is uh, as as rare and not going to happen anymore. No. I, probably not. I mean, I thought about it. I mean, I, I've, I, a lot of the people that I... Usually I was alternating with someone. Yeah. I, for, for a couple of periods I was doing it weekly, but most of the time it was actually fortnightly and yeah. I was alternating with... Um, quite a lot of those people just aren't even writing about music anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know? Particularly the women. Like, the listener had a lot of women writers, uh, quite a succession. For a long time they actually... Maintained a kind of male-female yeah. alternating thing. There was a woman called Debbie Gibbs, yeah. who was I was alternating with when I first started, um, and right at the end, Kieran Das and I were alternating. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it, I don't know quite. I, I'd be quite curious to know why people stop, because mm. um, I, I, you know, I, 
was always interested in writing about music. I couldn't see any reason to stop doing it. And I think the longer you do it, you lose some things and gain some other yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, how do you think, what's what's happened for you in 30 years of doing that, like in terms of your style yeah. changing or your outlook changing, you know? I yeah. mean, I, I've been reading your work since, I don't know when, but certainly since some point in the 90s. Mm. So, uh, you know, I was never quite sure exactly when you started at The Listener, mm. but, but I can remember reading your work throughout most of the 90s, so, you know, like 20, well, 20 years. Through, yeah, yeah, and... and um, and and you're one of the people, probably one of the only people at that point for me in in New Zealand whose voice I I recognise and understand and trust. So that all builds mm. up. And I've got international writers that I read, you know, mm. like because I'm starting to get interested in all of this in my in my journey. But you, you know, can you point to sort of moments where you recognise that you um, your approach changed? Uh, because I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, like we we consume music differently. Yeah. It's, it's it's you know, so much of record reviewing, whether people want to admit it or not. Even when they were, even you know, if you look at the classic sort of <coughs> international seventies writers, and, mm. and then even you know people in New Zealand that wrote really strong, smart, funny, and acerbic stuff. You, you mentioned Gordon Campbell, mm. you know, and astute stuff. Record reviews were still very much part of a record-selling guide. They were, you know, the writer might not have thought so, but that's how they ended up being used. And now that function doesn't really exist. Yeah, in fact, it was funny. I don't know if you listened to that panel that they did at the Auckland Museum recently on music critics. I I didn't hear the panel, but I I did read... I think Russell Brown did a review of it. Yeah, yes, I read that. I listened to it because it's a podcast on on the RNZ site. Yeah. And it was... I suddenly it dawned on me part way through it that they'd called a panel to talk about music critics, and, and it was the exactly made up of the people that music criticism is not for. for. Yeah, it was musicians yeah, and record co- and pub record company publicists. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yeah, there's the wrong people. If you yeah. want to talk about whether find out whether music criticism is, has any function anymore. Yeah. Um, it should be people who like music. Yeah. Do they? How do they use music criticism? Yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. uh, you know, it's always been. Uh, it, it's like a rule number one: you are not writing for the musicians. You are not writing for the record companies. Yeah. They may benefit from it. That's right. They may be able to get a good pull quote from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Or they'll hate you yeah. if 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 you say something yeah. um, negative. But it's. That's a byproduct. That's, that's right. That's not, the that's thing. not in your mind when you're doing it. No, it can't, it can't be. be. It can't be. That's yeah, and it's crept in that uh, I feel like it crept in quite quickly in New Zealand that that is a concern. Like mm. that, um, I'm sure it happens elsewhere too, but maybe it's just the small size of the yeah. country and the and the fact that it isn't a lucrative. It's yeah. never been a lucrative career option, you know, like, yeah. you know, you get people like yourself that, you know, you're still doing more than one thing to make it work, but also you're publishing for a, a top dog situation, mm. you know, you're working uh, Radio New Zealand and The Lister, and mm. you're working those roles quite hard, and you're doing mm. other things too. You can't make a living publishing uh, 400 words in a magazine once a month, you know. No, you, no. You, it can't happen. It's it's a thing people do as a hobby. If they get a little bit of, bit of beer money, that's fun, you know, whatever. But I think that has allowed people to be 
co-opted without realising it. I think that's right. Because accessibility, you know, as well, like uh, availability and accessibility will give you these records, say these things about it. It's never quite spelt out like that, but, Mm. you know, say these things about it, then we'll give you access to the person to interview. And it's very alluring to a young writer. Oh, yeah, cool, I'll do that. Yeah. Because they just think they're increasing their CV. They're just building up their building up their profile and their But actually you've been turned into a sort of a publicist. An unpaid shill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got to... Yeah, I was always aware that that wasn't... Mm. I I wasn't working for the record companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, Didn't mean I didn't have perfectly good, decent relationships with them. Um, In fact... I mean that's changed too, sadly. You yeah, know that yeah. there's the record companies. There's so little of them left. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know there used to be a time when they really did. I think there were people there who knew that the role of a that it was good to have critics because it was good to have people out in the society discussing the stuff that yeah. they do. You know, sometimes yeah. they'd like it, sometimes they wouldn't. But it was, um, and I you know that's what you know criticism is for. It's, it's that's the one way that you actually are benefiting the artists and the people who actually produce you yeah. know, the record companies and things is by talking about it, by yeah. keeping it, people interested. Yeah. Um, but that's a byproduct. You know, yeah, yeah. You're actually talking to other fans like yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. the real. That's who you're really working for. And, and I think, in some sense, you know, like, and it took me a while to realise this, but. In some sense, you you are doing it for yourself as well, mm. At, oh, yeah. not not just because you like music and you're part of that audience, but you know it, it becomes your creative pursuit. Yes, it, you know, and so you end up putting your voice out there in the way that you want it out there, just as a singer would or any other artist would. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I I would have to agree. It's it's it, it's hard to to front up with that because then yeah. suddenly that sounds like it's entirely an ego move and it's not. But that is a that's that what you do, it, you know. It is a function of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think music consumers, even the ones who don't write about music, we know that it's it forms people's identity. That's right. You know, um, pe- people get incredibly. Uh, you know, you wonder why people take it so seriously. Yeah. Because it becomes a representation of who they are, yeah, yeah. you know, what they like. Um, I mean, that's one thing that's changed, I guess, in my writing and my criticism over the years. I think when I started, I was actually much more defined by what I liked and didn't like. Mm. Um, if anything, I've got more objective and more sort of sanguine about about things, I think now I can, I can hear why someone would like would something. like something. At the you know, if I look at the reviews I wrote in the first decade, I suppose yeah. I was much more inclined then to rip into something that I thought was that just was not for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and when I look back at some of those, I find it a bit embarrassing because I yeah. it, it's like, well, no, they were doing. You know, it was okay within what it was. It mm. was just not for me, you know. But actually, you, the other thing I was going to have, have to say is that it's very interesting how the reaction you get to that sort of writing. I used to be, uh, if you look at, 
I haven't gone back and read them for a long time, but in the late 80s when Flying Nun could do no wrong... Yeah, yeah. I've been through the sort of Wellington school of, you know, mm. Bill Lake and the Eelman Eel people Man, yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. which was a very... Diff- it was actually parallel to Flying Nun, but it was a very different yes. thing. You know, it yeah. was much more concerned with... Um, they were interested in black music and yes. and reggae and and yeah. uh, and really subverting it though, like yeah, you know, yeah, it was black music with uh, you know um, not just white people playing it and a and white flavour, but like yeah. local accents, local. You know, yep. it wasn't it wasn't copycat stuff at all. It was no, I think it had an, an absor- identity. And it, it was an absorption of these records. Yes, turned into the sort of music you wanted to make with that as a guiding I'm glad you hear that because that's how it strikes me Mm. and coming out of that I mean I would write quite withering things sometimes about um, I remember writing a a review of a Bats record and describing you know every song has this rhythm and it goes jang 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 and I got a letter from Robert Scott yeah. who was rather miffed <laughs> but unfortunately I'd, I'd misnamed the record I hadn't, right. <laughs> I hadn't done my homework I, was got, I called it something and it was actually yeah. slightly different yeah. and he wrote he didn't he was obviously offended by the review but that yeah. was the thing that, he could pinpoint that and to pinpoint say that you'd um, yeah. but actually in the end I think by saying what you think you, you know I, I would look I've, there's reviews I wrote of, t- of Tall Dwarves records and things too where I took a, a you know I wasn't totally buying into the um, yeah hype or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah I mean yeah. hype's probably the wrong, wrong word, word to yeah, use yeah. but the um, the cult or the yes. idolatry or whatever yes. uh, and you find actually when you come to get to know, know these people um, there's a respect they have for you because you've been honest yeah you know? yeah um you know i i i oh. didn't know those people then they were from different yeah. cities and things yeah, yeah later on i did get to know chris knox a bit and yeah uh, you know he, he was a good person to get to know <laughs> well he, he was no slouch of a record reviewer he was, he was actually a predecessor of mine at the listener yeah, too i was you gonna know. say a really good film writer yeah. and, and, and knowledge and a good yeah. record reviewer yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 able to do things like review records through the medium of cartoons and stuff you know yeah as well yeah yeah so um yeah because i was going to say i i feel like in, in recent years you've probably um concentrated on accentuating the positive in a record which um i sort of take as being well you only publish every couple of weeks so mm. why why slam something that you know, when you can actually praise something and, and you know, get people interested in music rather than warding people off stuff. That tends to, yeah, when you're only, you know, of all the stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why pick one thing and just say this is rubbish? Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff now, you can't, for a start, you, you know, the... when I first started doing The Listener, the brief was really to try and cover everything, mm, you know. Mm. You can't even try to do that anymore. Yeah, it also came, I think, I, I, the, yeah, there was a bit of a change, and part of it was through radio. You can write, you know, in print it's actually quite fun to uh, to deconstruct something that you, doesn't ha, hasn't worked, you know, something yeah. that's a, 
a, a disappointment or a failure yes. or whatever yes. uh, and explain why but on air when you're actually playing the music all you're doing is polluting the airwaves if you don't like that music yeah why are you <laughs> blasting that yeah, at yeah, people yeah so i my approach to reviewing stuff on radio really did change a bit to going okay i'll, I'll try and find things that I'll at least find something interesting and yeah um, as you say why someone would why why its particular audience would like this yeah. and what they're going to get yeah, out of it. Yeah, that's what, more my approach there. Different. And it's interesting you say that because I've done a bit of um, radio reviewing and you're entirely correct about that. Like, each form is different. Yeah. And, you know, I did reviews on the TV for a while and I did that to, well, obviously I did it for a paycheck. That was the number one reason I did it. And the number two reason was I was curious to find out what was different about doing that. Yes. The, and it was different. And I could go on the TV and... and and run through three or four albums and pick one I didn't like and say why. And I never quite worked this out, but for some reason I found it a lot easier to do that than to take a, a record onto the radio and say I didn't like it. I tend to yeah. totally pick two or three things that I like and talk about, or at least talk about why yeah. why they're good and what they are in the context of their artist's career. But in print, I'm fine doing either. Yeah, you know, it's, it's yeah. Really, no, no, I agree. I'm, yeah. no, it's the same. Um, but probably the more radio I did, the more that, in some way, informed what I was doing in mm. print. I'm trying to think of the last time I wrote <laughs> about. I mean, I, you know, Greg O'Brien, the yeah. art critic. You know, yeah. he said something uh, about. He, he said, criticism for him. Um, is an act of uh, something not commitment, but it's something like that. Uh, it it uh, an act of conviction, not of willpower. Right. <laughs> and I thought that's that's it. You know, mm, if mm. you feel strongly about something, go. That's the thing you want to write about, not the thing that you go. Okay, this is a task I've got to perform. To mm. write, reviewing this record there's always something that you've got conviction about that's mm. going to always be a better thing to write yeah 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 so uh, when do you start doing the radio stuff how does that come about like do you yeah. do well, you do what a lot of people do and just sneak in the back door of, you know get asked once or twice to do something and then it becomes or do you apply to get a role yeah um well i was always quite interested in radio i mean Probably in the 80s, I started doing things on Radioactive, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the writing was happening. What happened... I, I started to have some ideas, I suppose, about programmes. You know, Radio New Zealand had so little contemporary music. Yeah. And I was doing, actually, radio reviews for the listener at the time. This would have been in the... God mid 90s yeah. or something I yeah. was the rate did, did a fortnightly radio review for a few years and so I was listening quite closely and going I can see what's missing here so I went along yeah with some ideas about some contemporary music programs that they could have and by pure chance this woman Kay Glamuzina had just become the music manager and she was younger than me and she had worked in Marbex mm. and she liked the same 
music that I did mm. and she just went yeah, yeah and she knew my writing from the listener and yeah. she said yeah we could do something together yeah so I did a few programs for her and then between us we hatched the idea of the sampler yeah. and she pushed that through I, I, I have to say I sort of owe my career in radio to her yeah. she didn't stay there long because she had other ambitions she found isn't that isn't that always the way I was going to say we, we doing these sorts of things we often end up owing our career in a particular or a particular vestige of it to someone and often it's someone that they move on yeah. but they set you up yeah. oh, they, totally. you know, they help you realise an idea and yep. you know I can't even remember the name of the person now that got me my first print article yeah. for the Evening Post but she did that on a chance meeting yep. and discussion and then she really went into bat for me and after two or three articles about nothing to do with music quite disparate things um I was able to make an approach about writing about music yeah. with her backing. When I wrote to thank her, she was gone. You That's, know, yeah, yeah. bumped into her in the street like many years later and said that you know thanks, right? Thanks you for know, my career. Thanks, yeah. thanks, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I can't quite call it that, but but you know exactly. Thanks for putting me on the path. Yes, and um, yeah, it's funny, but I can't actually think of her name now. You know, well, Kay, yeah, she was probably only there for a year or something yeah. after I started, but. Um, I've sort of kept in touch with her. I mean, she's gone and done all sorts of other things, yeah, yeah. but yeah. So the sample is the sample is rocking up in years now. Oh, too. that's about fifteen years, yeah, you know, just over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So was it two thousand and one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah. Two thousand. So yeah. yeah. So that's a yeah. It's a teenager. That's another sort of minor institution. Well, it is. It's. I was going to say, there's a lot of people that you know know you primarily from that yeah. now yeah. obviously there are some staunch radio New Zealand listeners out there and they have their key shows or features within shows that they go to and the sampler is a name that's always mentioned yeah that's interesting um, yeah I, I mean I think you know the, you've got to kind of work with other people too I mean since yeah. I started doing that there's been a whole lot more mm. c- contemporary music programming that's come in and some of it's really good yeah and Partly what I do now is governed by what other people are doing, you know. So mm-hmm. I go, well, I would perhaps have reviewed that or talked to that person, but that's already been covered, so I'll go over here, you know. So so how much of the, do you think, the sort of uh, concept or ideology of the show, of the sampler has changed mm. since you've, do you feel it's largely untouched or? Uh, yeah, I, Again, like it's still achieving that 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 main goal. Yeah, I mean the main goal is you know as we were talking about before, it's a bit different from writing reviews in a, yeah. in a magazine. Yeah. Because it's more like you know your mu- music nerd mate has taken three CDs down off the shelf and said, "Have a listen to these. I think these would be things that you might want. You might find one of these interesting this mm. week." You know. Um, that, that, I suppose that's always been the approach. I think that's under the underlying idea of it still. I was going to say that maybe um, there's... Do you, do you find it easier to uh, offer more analysis in radio or print? Uh, I write differently. I mean, because some of the yeah. stuff I script, but I script yes. it quite loosely. Yeah, you uh, script it for performance, for radio. Yeah, yeah I it read radio. it, yeah. but it's... Sometimes I do deviate a bit from the mm. script and I bang it out. It, it's, um, you know, it, it's, I, I basically read out loud as I'm writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's like recorded 
speech on yeah. the page and then I yeah. repeat it. Um, it's like, I remember, you know, Alistair Cook, who used to do Let- mm. Letter from America, I remember reading an interview with him, or maybe hearing an interview, and he, he said, yeah, he writes... He, he 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 writes as he speaks, you know, and then yeah. then delivers it. So that's sort of the approach for that. Whereas if you're constructing something that's only going to live on a page, um, like in a book yeah. or on a review, yeah, you write much more tightly. You scratch out unnecessary things. Mm-hmm. You know, I can mm-hmm. yeah, I can ramble off into little, you know. Sub areas of the which is part of the magic of, of, of that's that. a radio exactly. thing, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can say, Listen to this bit of this yes, track, which, listen which, to what the rhythm section is doing. All you're wanting to do in a print review, yeah. And but, I mean, now you can because you can print them online, and yeah. you, you know, that's where that's changed. But I, mm. I know from 15 years ago, like, sometimes all you wanted to do was. I remember one of the coolest record reviews I read was Steve Rendell writing in the Evening Post. I can't actually remember what the album was, but he basically finished by this capsule review. He finished by saying, "This review was going to be a little bit longer and mentioned all sorts of clever things, but really all I want to say to you is this record is lovely and you should listen to it." And I kind of went, "You can't do that every time," but yeah. it just worked for that particular yeah. piece, and it was just phrased just right. I thought, "There's nothing wrong with doing that because sometimes you just want to say that." Yeah, and yeah, radio you can do a and radio you can do you that. can say you listen can, to this. Yeah. Um, but you can draw people's attention to particular details too. Yeah, which is where that close listening and that, yeah. and also that part of your personality, that bass player that's supporting music, reacting. I you guess know, that's being, where it comes from. That, yeah, that's yeah. that's informing that as well. I think. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, when do you get into interviewing people within this? Is that something that just happens? to mm. a music writer or is it, that part of your big goal to do no that? not at all but it, I think it happened almost immediately that I started writing for the listener Some, suddenly um, interviews started sort of falling into my lap you know yeah. I think very soon after I started doing that and know, the you, record companies are sending you stuff and yeah, then one yeah. day they ring up and say do you want to speak to B.B. King yeah, you know yeah. well uh, ah yes actually you know yeah, yeah. I'd love to you know um, well did you have that sort of baptism by fire was it a big name first or I'm trying to think no I had done a few things for some of the locals rip it up yeah I did the f- I reckon the first actual profile of a musician I wrote was on Graham Downs oh, yeah. who I sort of knew a little bit because I'd been in a, playing in a band that got sort of put up in Dunedin and various places and I st- mm. stayed at Graham's place this wouldn't be in the mid 80s mm. so I did know him to talk to mm. and um, I was just interested in his whole sort of you know mala on one side and you know yeah, 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 yeah. Um, punk rock on the other you know so I, I wanted to pick his brains about that mm. so it was just a personal thing I was interested in and I did a story on him for the listener I, I must have gone to them and said do you want a feature on this Yeah. and yeah it's that thing of once you're in there they'll generally be interested in, in anything else you want to throw at them yeah yeah. and how do you um, how do you cope with those early sort of interviews with big name people do you mm. you know do you get more starstruck doing that than say when I say you're not really starstruck in the book but when you're actually dealing with Mm. stars do you panic or are you do you have butterflies are there things you don't want to fuck up or does it not happen like that for you um it's always 
and it's never really stopped being a slightly bizarre mm. and slightly artificial situation. Yeah. You know, that you're given access to this person, but it's for, for, for this, this finite time. Yeah, about it's this, essentially about this one thing that it's not a relationship. No. You know, it's not a new friendship, even though you have, you know, um, you you have exclusive attention, the exclusive attention of, yes. you know, James Brown or John yeah. Lee Hooker or BB, you know, yeah. those people I actually talk to um, for that period of time. But in some ways, you've got to remember, it's kind of almost meaningless to them. Yes. Uh, yes, they're doing the same thing. It's an know. interesting thing. It, you go in, I try to go in with no expectations because a couple of times when I went in thinking, this will go well, I'll, I'll connect with this person. Falls flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd, yeah. They'd, got, they'd be completely different from how you expected. And the reverse. Yes. I rem, uh, the one that surprised me the most ever was Lou Reed. You got a good interview out of him? He was... Lovely. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it just went, you know, I, I, just I knew a, a all phone the received, a phone just a fun, just a yeah. fun, but all the received Still. wisdom about sort of, you know, he's yeah. the guy who, who oh, he's the walks terror. out, yeah. hangs up, tell, yeah. tell, you know, he, he wow. was, uh, and I think it came down to the right opening question and it wasn't even a planned thing. He, I mean, it was his voice on yeah. the line, you know. Yeah. And and I said, you got Ornette Coleman on your record. Ah, and he went, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, you wanna you wanna hear the outtakes? Um, and then he started singing Ornette Coleman solos. Right. He said he did this one that went like this, you know. And he started singing these <laughs> solos down the line. And then it was that terrible record that he did of Edgar Allan yeah, Poe, yeah, you yeah. know, which was almost unlistenable. But yeah, having Ornette Coleman on it was something I was interested in. Yes, and then. Talking about Edgar Allan Poe and about the intersection of literature and music and stuff. Yeah. And he was so sort of self-effacing, you know. Like, he would Wow. He, he 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 sort of said, you know, I said, I said look, um why why do you feel you need to validate yourself by writing on it, you know, setting on it Coleman, uh, we're yeah. setting Edgar Allan Poe stories to music, yeah. uh, your work is seen surely as having literary merit on its own. And he said, oh, we try in our little ways, you know, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to compare myself to Edgar Allan Poe. And I said, you know, you're, you're very self-deprecating, he said, that's my middle name. And, wow! You know, I just must have caught him. Oh, on you'd a, got him after day. The, you'd caught, you had, to be fair, you'd got him with the tai chi and kicked him. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's late period lose. So yes. there's something in that, but still, yeah, yes. I mean, he's probably with Laurie by then. And, yeah, you know, I mean, Sylvie Simmons talked to him around that time, and he and he tore strips off her. You know, like she wrote a really great piece about about that situation, but yes. that was sort of around that time. Yes, she might have even talked to him just after that yeah and, you know and he was so he still had that in him I look I fully expect I, yeah. I, I mean in a way I just that was one of my more fearless wow. interviews because I thought he he will probably hang up on me yeah I, I cannot have that, any expectations that's right what's the worst that could happen so Who, I just you know, well it's a guy on the end of the line but it was good it was wow. it was it was fun have it you had fun. that can you share the opposite situation someone that you're like you think this is going to go well, and, yeah. and I can't wait. I'm a big fan, you know. Yeah. And it kind of tags. I thought that I talked once to Michelle Shocked. That would have been probably 
early 90s so she'd made that short sharp shocked album which i really yeah. liked yeah and a couple of others um and she just seemed to be from from the records i got this persona that she was right, this very she, um i expected her to be a certain way yeah and she was she not. was no <laughs> yeah, she was yeah. grumpy yes. she was she refused to make any sort of personal connection. Yeah. She Do you was, have a question? Is that a question? Yeah, yeah. she was like that. It was. It was. There was I don't no, understand the question. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing, you know. Oh. And it was, and I just maybe I hadn't prepared myself enough mm. because I thought, oh, she'll be someone you can just sit back and talk to about music because she, you know, I know all this music that she's listened to. You know, yeah. it's all this old folk music and the traditional stuff, and we can talk about politics and we can talk about yeah no you didn't get any of that yeah she, she wanted to promote her record and grouse about the record industry <laughs> yeah and it was awful wow um so you you make some more records yourself you make windy city strugglers records that that band yeah uh, continues on with this kind of uh uh what's the word um part-time Oh approach, yeah, very, very part much. time. Although in the early to mid two thousands, there's you know some pretty regular records. Yeah, I remember we the, Europe. Yeah, <laughs> a, a doc, Costa makes a documentary yeah, about that's you. That's right. Um, but I remember, I, I still remember fondly that Snow on the Desert snow. Road record. Yeah, that, yeah. that feels like some a really strong it, one. In some ways, that's the best one I think. But I don't know. Kingfisher, pretty good too. Yeah, I like those two particularly. Yeah. I'm proud of those because it was again. I mean, the strugglers. Ambitions were only ever originally were, you know, if you ask me, was just to be a very faithful country blues jug band. Jug band you know, yeah, that's yeah. what it started as, and it was sort of revived as that yes. post Pelicans and everything, and post Jive Bombers. Yeah, and we started just well, let's play those songs again because that's fun, and then it started. Bill started bringing in songs that he and Arthur Basting had written, which might fit the strugglers you know and then you get to what you go well god anything could be a struggler song let's just see yeah, if it yeah. works yeah yeah uh, so that was very a very creative thing working on those records yeah i love doing that yeah um do you have i mean i know you've got a little you've always got a little musical project on the go but do you have like is there something sort of great and unrealised in your career as a, <laughs> as a performer or I don't you're pretty happy so. as as the guy in the back with the uh, lollipop bass just uh, kicking in when, it, when it's needed yeah I mean playing bass in the strugglers I was also you know I corralled them into making those recordings they probably wouldn't have done that right. otherwise um, it's a, you know I like that thing it's, it's like writing a book it's, yeah. it's, it's shaping something you're making all this raw material a project. Yeah. yeah let's shape it and make something out of it so I like doing that, and I'll do more of that when, when the opportunity comes up. You know, I've worked with a few other artists. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. And just help them knock something into... You know, but bands are funny things, you know, that... that I mean, an album in some ways is quite artificial, you know. It's, it's, yes. it's putting... It's saying, we'll take this thing you do and this yeah. thing you do, and we'll put those things together. Yeah. But I like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's like putting a frame around a picture or something, you know. It's you know, shaping something. Mm. Um, so, did writing yeah. the did writing the book make you? And I know you've written books before, but did writing this book is this a planned volume one of you know like because I think you've very nicely created a 
a situation where you could explore the next decade through your eyes. Yeah. You know, and and probably have quite a lot to say about the eighties. Um is that consciously sort of on the back? No, that no. not that one. There's another book I would like to write and it's not that at all. Um and it's very amorphous. I can feel right. that it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> um and it's it's quite different. It's about it's again, it's the germ of it is like the way this started. There's yes. a person who I think did some extraordinary things in an earlier period, in the 60s, who no one really knows anything right. about. And I don't really either, except right. I know a few things that he did. Yeah. And I think it could be an adventure to find out about him. Well, I was going to I was gonna ask if you'd ever... <laughs> I was going to ask if you'd ever thought about doing, like, straight biography, because, yeah. you know, you're so good at these, like, profile pieces and interviews and, you know... And, and and obviously a good writer, um, and and part of being a music reviewer is, you know, reading loads of terrible and great biographies. So you get some good clues through that too, don't yeah. you? Has that ever appealed to you to to either ghost write or write mm. a straight biography of a musician? Uh, and have you been approached? I've probably had what. I have. I've never taken it on. I've had. A, yeah. I guess a couple of people have sort of suggested it. Um, it's. It's not actually the sort of writing I most want to do. Yeah. I, in a way, Gonville is the kind of writing I want to do. It's, I can, I it's actually I creative writing. Yes. I mean, I think it. It's that challenge of trying to weave together actually quite different kinds of writing. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. something that. The kind of writing you might read in a Greil Marx book, interweaving it with the kind of, as we were talking about it right at the beginning, that mm. Giles Smith lost in music, mm. or um, yeah, trying to make things fit that wouldn't normally yeah, work well, like together. That's, I'm this, interested I could, in that. I could see you writing, you know, about something that really music is not the key yeah. ingredient, but it's, it'll always be there. You'll yeah. always bring that to it. Yeah. But I could imagine you writing, you know, uh, about another sort of fad or era historically. Sure. No, I'm interested in that. Uh, you yeah. Know, and I'm interested in, um, I think, what gets called the lyric essay, you know. Yes. Um, that's, you know, I could imagine even a, a, collection, a collection of, yeah. of mm. not necessarily connected pieces, you know. Mm. In and some ways there's chapters in that that are like little standalone. And what about pieces. fiction? You said you said there was that short story thing that you yeah, might publish. Yeah, I was very surprised. Um, did yeah, that light a particular like? Did that sort of open a door or light a fire for more of that? Um, well, it's odd. It's it's not really fiction. I mean, it's a kind of a memoir, but I, I don't think there's much difference anyway. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I found during the masters, they put there's two groups of ten. One lot of writing novels, mm. the other lot are either writing non-fiction or poetry. Right, so okay, I was so in with novels poets. and non-novels, yeah, yeah. Novels and non-novels. <laughs> and the group I was in was sort of half non-fiction and half poets. Yeah, yeah. Think, what are we going to have in common with the poets? Well, actually they're non-fiction writers yeah, too, yeah, I, I realised. Yeah. They're just doing it in an even more... I mean, and they were fantastic readers, I have to say. The poets had such valuable stuff to say about my writing, you know, mm. and they really helped me really sort well, it's of like if, stuff down. It's like if the, the, the non-fiction writers are journalists, 
the, mm. the poets are like diary writers, aren't they? Which is mm. a form of mm. the earliest form of journalism. You yeah. know, they've got that observational thing about That's it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. yeah. And the Much other more thing, in common than I and, and the other thing I was going to say about this book too is that is that these characters in it. Mm. You know, they could have been fictionalised. I bet you could, you could have a blood... I mean, Rick almost, you know, like you meet Rick and there's, you, you kind of create this image of him as this, yeah. as this king, which he which he is and was to yeah. so many musicians. Yeah. You know, you could have had a lot of fun fictionalising a guy like that, but it makes more sense to... <laughs> yeah. I treated it almost like fiction. I mean, mm. it's true... But I was, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's actually any, any difference. Yes. Is where I mean that there's no difference. If you're trying to create a scene, I can't see that what I was doing, sort of describing the interior of Rick's house and seeing him in the room and the smoke and all this sort yes. of stuff, is any different from what a fiction writer would, yeah. would do. And also, they're not well known enough for people to go, ah, but you missed this bit. No. You know, it's like. They, they, in that sense, they, they, they could all be you. You could all be fictional characters, yeah. you know. It is just they're real people, but they're not like giant names in history that people are going to spot the bit you left out. No, no. Uh, so I, you can paint broadly when you want to, and then you focus it on these nice little exactly details. There is actually one piece of fiction in there too, which only lasts for about a page and a half. Right. Quite near the end, where I imagine a meeting between Graham Nesbitt and oh, Richard yes. Holden. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because no one, even though they were operating these two parallel worlds, you know, mm. the university rock circuit and the pub circuit, and there were all these similarities between them, and they were there at exactly the same time, no one could ever tell me that they met. No right. one knew either of them right. ever, could ever remember any sort of meeting. So I thought, no, I'll conjure one up you know, yeah. and see if I can put on the page the sort of conversation that would have happened if they'd met. Yeah. And I say that it's fiction, but it's, you know, that it, I, I wanted to put some a piece of pure fiction in there too, just to show that there's yes. not... Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fluid. Yeah, yeah, and the other, and the other thing, and and these are moments that almost feel like they could be that too. Is is within your sort of sustained walk on cameo, you bring in these like great little elements, like you're in the street one. And you'd written about this previously, but I think on your website. But Aye. you bring it, you know, you're in the street and Bob Dylan walks past. And yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You get to offer a, a line to him, which is probably something. 98% of Dylan fanatics have, have thought about one way or another. Probably, what would you say to probably, Dylan? Probably dreaded the thought, a lot of them. Yeah. You know, like the Lou Reed situation, or desperately thought, what would I say? And yeah. you end up at a set of traffic lights or whatever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah. And, the, and you go to Bruno Lawrence's tuggy, you know, which yeah. I think, like, that's... I mean, you know, he, he, he lived in a part of the world that in a part of the country that I sort of oh, know, yeah. was close to so yeah. knew, him, knew a little yeah. bit and I met him very briefly uh, yeah. towards the end of his life so just a one off he walked up to me when I was putting some drums in my car and said flash drums cunt <laughs> that's so Bruno and that's, um, uh, I looked around <laughs> flash and, drums cunt yeah, yeah and I looked around and he and it was in my high school and I was 17 and he had uh, uh, a beer bottle you know, he's in shorts, and he was the patron of this National Youth Drama School. 
and I was in the music class yeah. and I was taking my drums off to go to a band practice and I was going to bring them back the next day and he wanted to look at them and within a, <laughs> so that happened and of course I knew who he was so I was like first of all I gasped but you know the language and the way it, the way it was delivered uh, I thought it was hilarious but then I go oh and it is actually him and then he's offering me like oh come up to the house and I'll give you a cymbal bag because my cymbals were all in towels and <laughs> I had no way of carrying them I never followed up on that and oh. I always wish I did yeah yeah but you know so anything reading anything about him I'm like he, he's one of those New Zealanders that we all sort of had a bit of a purchase on you yeah. know or thought we yeah. did or yeah well he was I have to say yeah he was kind of pretty formative for me you know just these these kind of chance encounters I mean you know with him um you know he he was maybe almost as much as Rick for me even though I never played in a band with Bruno or anything he was he was like someone who inhabited that world totally and you could see that it was possible because he was there and just yeah. And he was a really great drummer, you know. He like was a really, great drummer. Really yes. creative. Mm. I remember seeing him play in Napier, you know, around that time, like maybe a year or two before I had that charts encounter. I bumped into him. Yeah. I remember going over and seeing his his band, the Jasmine, which is a little quartet. Yeah. And you know, and he's doing all the real sort of Elvin Jonesy colouring. Oh God! You know? Yeah, yeah. He could actually really play. You know, it wasn't. Uh, he was a fantastic musician. Um, yeah, and he used to, yeah, he had this appearance of sort of, you know, that everything was intuitive and he just did it. But Ian Watkin told me, you know, he said, no, Bruno used to practice and practice. Yeah, yeah, I bet. A real student of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so the book ends up being this love letter to all sorts of people and things, I think. Yeah. It's also a love letter to, again, to come back to that concept of nostalgia I feel like the book is a, a love letter to a part of New Zealand that's gone yeah you know yeah it's it, it, I hope it, it comes across kind of like that yeah too. um yeah I mean you know New Zealand doesn't treat its creative people very well I don't think no um you know it's it, if you look at you know by comparison the way sports heroes are treated you know musicians or whether it's musicians or actors or whatever you know they're they're sort of trotted out when we need to show that we've got some kind hey look we we can kind of do this yeah yeah (laughs) look oh we've got Dave Dobbin you know he writes some he writes some anthems but you sort of push them away again I mean um, and I mean maybe it's partly the nature of the profession you know creative people tend to be outsiders in a way if you're the kind of um, the bon vivant, you know, you're not really doing your job as a creative person. You a, know. That's true. There's a self-doubt attached to it too that that um, that uh, is not there and cannot be there with uh, you know a sporting success. That's true. That's yeah. that's re- interesting. Yeah, the sports people have to believe in themselves. Yeah, they can be, they can the they can be low key when they're not performing. Yeah, and be, it doesn't mean they're and, not going to suffer me- from depression or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's, and many of them, I'm sure, are. But mm. but there's a there's an adrenaline rush that is whilst you might feel something pretty profound when you're playing a guitar solo or mm. or just playing root notes, you know, behind someone uh, in that moment, mm. there's, there's instantly you walk off and go, was that okay? 
Mm. Most musicians do that. Was that okay? Or someone tells them it's okay and they go, tells them it's really good and they go, nah, it wasn't that good. You know, I don't reckon that's that's quite the same on the sports field. No, I mean, and not to mention the kind of intense sort of interrogation of self that, you know, you'll get from a, you know, real people on, you know, a Colin McCann or, you know, people who actually really live their lives on the margins. Ralph Hotary. Yeah, all, look. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know whether, yeah, I, I mean, maybe, yeah, as I say, maybe that's just the lot of, of the artist, but I think in New Zealand we're, no, I think there are societies where, I think the French, for instance, are much more ready to celebrate their creative um God, icons, you no, know. I think the Australians are. Even the Australians. Yeah. <laughs> Even the Australians. <laughs> no, but it's true because I, I yeah. say it that way because, you know, obviously sport is a big fucking deal there and they're really good at it. Yeah. Uh, but I think they have a confidence about themselves that extends over to their arts. Yeah. That is actually really admirable. Yeah. You know, and we don't, and we don't have that. No. We don't have that at all. I don't really, I don't ever quite know why we don't have that. Like even in our... Even in our, I mean, like, we're two people that have spent, like, our working lives to date, uh, generally, supporting and, and thinking, promoting, thinking, thinking about, about the arts. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but, you know, we, we still, as a, uh, you know, when you, when you sort of try and unpack it, there's doubt and why is there doubt it's residual it's conditioned it's built in and it's not it's a weird thing because it's not sometimes I thought well it's a product of a small society or a Mm. young society Mm. but actually you look at some of those you look at Iceland or something yeah (laughs) I mean it's interesting because I made some friends when we were in Auckland with some Icelandic couple who were really fascinating and that there were a lot of parallels talking to them between Iceland mm. and New Zealand and mm. they were always laughing about, you know, when New Zealand's whenever we talked about punching above our weight, because yeah, they would yeah. say, Yes, it's just like that in Iceland too, you know. Right. But actually, um, you know, you, you get artists in 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 government mm. <laughs> in Iceland. Yeah, I don't think yeah. we've got to that point yet. No, no, no. <laughs> or in Norway or something, you know, there's just a sort of a um, a respect for those voices in the society, you know, yeah. they, they are adding something important that that sports people or business people yeah. or politicians aren't, you know, and it's something to do with the kind of the psychological health of the society. Mm. Um, and, and in a way that, yeah, I've tried to uh, express my respect for those people in, in my book well another good uh, kind of recurring uh, thing with a character or group of characters worth mentioning in here is Red Bull yeah you know which I, I think again like the romantic story we attach ourselves to is Blurter yeah which is obviously comes up in the book but Red Bull you know mm. a really important I would have thought troop for want of a word um a really important concept, but seems yeah. largely forgotten, you know, yeah. or undiscovered. Yeah, um, yeah, no, they're really important. I mean, they could have been much bigger, but you have to in the book, but you mm. have to sort of, um, you do have to narrow it down. Um, what was I going to say about them? Because there was some something I wanted to say. Oh, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, at, at the end, it's quite a tragic story. <laughs> the, yeah, the Red Mole story. Martin Edmonds written quite a lot about. 
Red Mole. Yeah. And I expect at some point, I don't know, I've never heard him say it, but I could imagine him writing a whole book about them. Yeah. Um, he'd be the person to do it. He was a real inspiration, I have to say, to his writing. Have you read any of his stuff? A little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really good writer. Yeah, um, yeah, a great writer, I think, and, and writes about New Zealand reveals layers of New Zealand yeah. through his writing and makes incredible connections between things. His ability to sort of segue. <laughs> I mean, his biography of Philip mm. Claremont, and I don't know if he even would call it a biography, because yeah. in, a, in a way, he's a character in, in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of a masterpiece of, of writing. I must read that, yeah. But he's, yeah, but, he's great. And Chris, Chris has that skill too, which I imagine... Um, Chris Burke. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I imagine you, t- you, you. You mean you know him well. I know Chris well. Yeah. We talk a lot about lots of things. I would say. <laughs> I, I was going to say. I'd say you'd have some quite similar. I would imagine he's. Uh, I mean, I, I know Chris a little bit, but I, I would imagine he's um, quite the Grill Marcus fan as well. Yeah. Yeah. He sure is. He actually has. I think he has an ongoing correspondence with Grill. Right, right. <laughs> um, Which would be the only kind of correspondence to have with him. Yeah. None or that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I think yeah. They, they exchange things occasionally. Wow. But, um, yeah. So, obviously the big plug that needs to happen is for me to tell, um, and I'll, I'll write something about your book, and obviously loads of people will write about it, I'm sure, but is, is to say that... It's arrived just in time for Christmas. <laughs> I don't know if that's the plan or if it's been delayed or if it's just a fluke of marketing, but it really would be a great Christmas present in that obviously music people are going to love it, but the book is about so much more than just music and these characters um, are human beings, you know, and very human and very um, interesting to watch and, and read about and learn about, even if you don't know their music at all. Well, look, it's fantastic to hear someone say that because that that was my hope, and I I honestly have no idea yeah. <laughs> whether I've achieved that. With I think it, but, you've you achieved know, a, a, a but, really beautifully written, fascinating social history of a time that will mean so much to people that have lived through it, and 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 hopefully just as much or more. To I mean, I didn't live through it. I was born in the mid seventies, so uh, you know I had no real connection to this apart from. Obviously, being a music nerd, I knew some of the quite a few of the names, hmm. and I knew some of the music, um, you know, that, that's involved. But that's all come after for me. Yeah, because I mean, any music fan eventually starts working backwards. That's right. Too. Yeah. So hopefully, this will be of interest to people who are working backwards. You know. I don't... Um, I, I, <laughs> but anyway, look, thank you very much for that because well, yeah, you know. It's... Well, you know, look. Hearing you've... that, I feel well. It's, it's achieved its purpose with it for at least one person. But know. you're also a, uh, you know, you are a, um, what's the word? You are a, an acclaimed author, really, in New Zealand. Your books have been well received. I would have thought the other two, and they're different books. They're very light compared to this. Yeah, the other books, the How to Listen to Pop Music and Hundred Essential yeah. New Zealand albums. I think this. I'm pleased with some of the writing in them, yeah. but they're very much done to a template. You that's know, right. Part, that's what, that's both were mean. part of a series. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So this is the first time that I've been able to design this my is own you, template. Design, that's exactly and it. I actually couldn't find another book. I kept looking for a book that actually did exactly what this book does. Yeah. Um, that combines those different kinds of writing in this way, and I actually couldn't find no. one. And and some of the time I was worried about that. 
And some of the time I thought, well, maybe that's a really good thing. You know, maybe I've actually written a book that, that's a bit different. Well, you, you said to me when I bumped into you a couple of weeks ago at a show and we were organising meeting up and I hadn't, I think I'd, I hadn't read the book at that point, but you said uh, words to the effect of uh, my book is kind of the period just before Roger Shepard's book mm. and they're not really connected but they are and I and I thought about that reading it and mm. another thing to say would be obviously Roger's book is a great book and a lot of people would have received that this year and read it and some will be receiving it for Christmas and the you know this is a logical follow on or the prequel yeah that'd be a nice one too like if if you've enjoyed that try this kind of thing it is is a bit like that and they're both really good standalone books but they they sort of talk to each other or they could on the shelf they'd look good together oh I hope so I mean I think it's been quite a good year for New Zealand music books Mm. you know I mean New Zealand is small and you can't it can't support a huge amount of, of no. literature on the subject, you know, yeah. and you want... But actually we've been getting a little bit more... We've been getting a little bit more, good. and they're good, yeah. and that's right, that's the thing, you want yeah. it all to be good, because yeah. if someone does something badly, yeah. it kind of... Holds it up It muddies, everyone. it clouds the, the pond yeah. for, for, for a couple of years, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, uh, that dud book that and no one really wants to publish another book music music book or buy another music yeah. book up there. You know. And I won't name names, but there That's is right. the odd one out there that I think no, that was very, a mistake. Very kind of you to not name names. I got mine out of the way a few years ago, you said no, so. it's not yours <laughs> that I'm thinking of. <laughs> um, what do you go and do next? What's 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 the plan beyond the sampler still Yeah. It's gonna happen, you you still get you you, you appear in um Radio New Zealand and other or RNZ under some other guys as you do a bit of writing. Yeah, can, I mean that's the sample is one of my duties at RNZ at the moment. I'm 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 an employee. Yes. I work half time there, so the rest of the time I'm a freelance and yeah, other bits of music writing. I'm going to start looking at another book. You know, just mm. do it, scratching the ground and seeing what I can find. It's a real. It's actually a sort of a detective story in a way. This one I want to write, yeah. and I don't. I'm not much of a detective, so I don't know uh, where I'm going to end up. You know, I. But we'll see. If I had a book by you every year, I'd be very pleased. But I recognise that that's largely an impossible task, particularly for someone who isn't just full time working on a book. Yeah. But if we could have one from you every two <laughs> every two years from now yeah. on, or, God, it'd be good, wouldn't it? I, I, I for one, would support that. Well, <laughs> so. that's a great vote of confidence.
Yeah. 